Amen and amen. Well, if you would, please take your seats and turn with me and your copy of the Word of God to the book of Psalms and Psalm 119 as we begin a new evening series on this great Psalm of God. Please listen carefully. This is the Word of the living God. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in His ways. You have commanded us, so you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but this is the Word of God, and it abides. It endures forever. Well, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. You probably knew that. It's an acrostic psalm, a psalm that is a poetic meditation both on God and His law and on the Hebrew alphabet. And so, each stanza, and there are 22 of them, each stanza begins, each verse of each stanza begins with the successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So, the first stanza, each verse in the Hebrew begins with the, um, the, the, the letter Aleph, or the Hebrew letter A, and then the second stanza, Bet, which is the Hebrew letter B, and Gimel, Delet, Chavav, Zion, Chet, and on the way through the whole Hebrew alphabet until you get to the letter Tav, which is the final letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The psalm seeks to make the connection between the Word of God in the heart of a man and the life of God in the soul of the man. And it's as if, as we make our way through the psalm, that the psalmist, verse after verse after verse, wants you to know you can't have the one without the other. You must have the Word of God in your heart if you want to have the life of God in your soul. And the psalmist reminds me, as we make our way through the psalm, he reminds me of a jeweler picking up a diamond or a ruby, holding it up to the light, and rotating the, the, the jewel in his fingers, watching the light sparkle off the various facets of the diamond. And the diamond, in this case, of course, is the Bible, the Word of God. And he ransacks the Hebrew dictionary to find words to describe Scripture. It is Torah, which is the Father's instruction. You'll see in Proverbs again and again, like in Proverbs 3, verse 1, forsake not the teaching, the Torah of your Father. It's a word used to describe firing an arrow with a bow, an aim target, and a father um, not shooting his children with arrows, so he may at times feel the desire to, but it's firing instruction into his children's hearts, hoping to guide them and lead them to life. So, it's not, a, it's not so much the, the hard, inflexible 
rule of a barrister or a lawyer, but it's a father's kindly instruction. That's what the Bible is, and that's what the Bible should mean to every child of God, is the father's instruction. It's the guide home to the father's house. It also contains God's testimony. God's testimony, a sacred legal witness pointing to an appointed standard. Think of a speed limit on the roadside. Not a very warm and fatherly thing, I have to say, especially after last week's experience on the way home from the conference, but it's a, it's a limit, a, a, a legal testimony that promises blessing for obedience uh, and curses for disobedience. It's also God's precepts, His precepts. You have commanded your precepts that we should keep them diligently, He says in verse 4, and the word precept carries the idea of the nitty-gritty details of the Christian life. I'm reminded of the Puritan Mr. Rogers, who was once told by a local sheriff in his day, um, I like you well enough, Mr. Rogers, but I find you altogether too precise. To which Mr. Rogers said, ah, but I serve a precise God. And precision matters. It's often been observe that if you started out sailing for Hawaii from California, and you got your course charted wrong by a degree, just one degree in the compass, a tiny little error, by the time you got to where Hawaii ought to be, it wouldn't even be on the horizon. You couldn't see the islands. Little errors can make a huge difference, and God has given us precepts to obey. He speaks also of statutes. The word statute in Hebrew is derived from the word to engrave something onto stone, a lasting standard then set down for the ages. I've been watching um, Bill and Patty Marsh's travels through Rome recently, and before that, of course, um, um, somebody else was, was in Rome from our congregation whose name escapes me at the moment, but we've had a number of friends in Rome recently and seeing pictures today of um, the ancient Latin inscriptions on the wall of the Colosseum that have been there for well over a thousand years, and um, these, these things written in stone, and God's Word too, written in stone, reminds us, of course, of the Ten Commandments that God wrote with His finger upon the, um, the stone. And then the straight-up commandments of God, His commandments, the Word emphasizes His authority not merely the power to convince or persuade, Derek Kidner says, but the right to give orders. You know, in the 1960s, the teenage generation raised their fist with an almighty, says who? And it was, it was natural for all teenagers to question the authority of their elders. But in the 1960s, especially in America, with the, the parental generation laden with the guilt of segregation and the kind of American apartheid that we had here in wickedness for many years. Um, the parents were the first generation who did not have the moral authority to stare down their teenagers, and they lost that battle, and it seems to have been losing it ever since. As a culture, says who? And the psalmist says, God says who? That's who says who. It's the commanding authority of God. You'll see also the judgments of the Lord are spoken of in the psalmist, in the psalm. And the word judgment carries the idea of one who is in charge. Uh, not so much a legal courtroom 
idea, but of a king, the curious, the, the, um, the Lord enthroned, the Adonai, one who does what he wants, where he wants it, and his, his law is obeyed in his kingdom. It's his, his judgment, and it, it, it lands with massive authority upon the souls of his subjects. And then the seventhly, the most basic term for the Word of God is the Word of God, your words. Sometimes translated promises in the psalm, just God's vocal utterance. We come to the Bible, and you open the very first page of the Bible, and you meet a God who speaks. And yet, a, a God whose Word changes things. He speaks to nothing, and everything leaps into existence. It's hard to imagine nothing. When we say there was creation ex nihilo, we mean creation out of nothing, but not just nothing, but nothing, nothing. No time, no space, no matter. That trinity of creative existence lurched into being simply because God spoke. You have to have those three things, time, space, and matter at once. If you have matter, you have to ask, where is it? Space. And if you, if you have matter in space, you have to ask, when was it? Which is time. You have to do the three things together in the space-time continuum. Otherwise, existence is impossible. There aren't enough dimensions. And so, we come to a God who speaks, but whose Word has creative authority. And not just creative authority, but sustaining authority. The writer of the Hebrews tells us that God upholds the universe by the word of His power. He speaks. It is, why is there something and not nothing? God has spoken. Why is there still something and not nothing? Because God is still speaking. He's upholding the universe. It is the, the power source behind all of the laws of gravity and thermodynamics and nuclear physics, the atomic attractive forces that hold stuff together. It's amazing when you think of the tiny nucleus of each um, uh, chemical element, a tiny nucleus surrounded by these huge spaces of nothing inhabited only by spinning um, electrons that most of everything is nothing, which is kind of weird, but it's true, most of everything is nothing. And yet, these nuclei are held together by these atomic bonds that are held in place by the very Word of God, holding the warp and the woof of created existence together. So, you come to a Bible of words, but not just the words of anyone. They're the words of God Himself, and they should grip us as such. And behind each of those terms, statutes, commandments, judgments, word, precepts, testimony, and Torah, we need to realize that the information contained is intensely personal. It's not just a judgment or a truth or a standard or an idea, but in each case, it points us back to the person of the one saying those things. They're the precepts of God, the judgments of God. We often forget that. We think of laws in, as impersonal standards, like the speed limit. We know, you know, some Baratchnik somewhere said, in this place, thou shalt drive no faster than 35 miles an hour. But we can't imagine his face. Don't know who it was. Um, we might not like him very much. We can resent him sometimes more than another when we're late and in a hurry. But it's, it's an impersonal standard. That's not the way it is with the law of our God. It's an intensely personal, intimate, 
communication of one being to another. There's an I-thou relationship in all of these statutes. God isn't just speaking them in midair, giving them willy-nilly. He's giving them to you. The question you must face is whether or not you will take them seriously, whether or not you will regard them and obey them, or whether you will disregard them and disobey them. But they are the voice of God, whether you reject them or receive them. One thing is, though, you cannot claim to honor God if you dishonor this book of words. Now, as we make our way through Psalm 119, the psalmist wants, to, wants you to connect the words of this book with your life. These words are your life. It's, in a sense, each verse in the psalm is a signpost crying out, to all who have ears to hear, this way to life, son, this way to life. He who loves me loves life. He who hates me loves death. Now, this signpost to life has many enemies. It's hard to find this way, or it may be easy to find this way, but hard to keep yourself on it because it's surrounded all around with enemies. As you read through the psalm, you'll see the psalmist faces enemies without. Arrogant men. You You rebuke the insolent, the psalmist says, the accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Some of these enemies are great men, like princes. The psalmist laments, even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your standards. He calls them wicked Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. The idea of wicked, of course, in the Bible, as we've said before, is the idea of simply looking for life where life cannot be found, looking for life abstracted from God. Turning away from God and walking away from Him is the heart disposition of all wickedness. Psalm 18, verse 21 I have not wickedly departed from your law. And the word wicked is the verb in that sentence. There is no Hebrew verb depart in that word. Just literally, literally it says, I have not wickedly away from God. To be wicked is to move away from God, to turn away from God. And you'll find the wicked all over the psalm. They are the psalmist's enemies. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. These men are double-minded. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. People who don't know which way to turn. Do they obey God? Do they obey sin? And they're kind of stuck. It reminds me of the insurance claim that once said, I saw a sad-faced, lonely man in the middle of the road. He didn't know which way to run, so I ran over him. Not something you want to write on your explanation of benefits for your insurance claim. But nonetheless, these, there are people in this world who are double-minded. James speaks of them. The double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And so you'll find these enemies all over the psalm, adversaries, persecutors, reproachers, oppressors, evildoers. They're against the psalmist. Interestingly, and we've, we've said this before, I think, but the psalm begins in the singular, blessed is the man. Blessed, um, um, no, it doesn't. Forgive me. I'm thinking of Psalm 1 here, for example, so I shall leave that point to later. 
Am I right about that? Yes, I am. Forgive me. So we'll, we'll leave that point off. That's my, 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 I was leaning on a previous insight. Psalm 1 begins with, blessed is the man, right? And um, observed in that, in Psalm 1, the righteous are always spoken of in the singular, whereas um, the wicked are plural. And it kind of gives a sense that if you want to be um, on the right path that leads to life, you'll be in the minority most of the time. That's a true point, but it's not the point of Psalm 119, verse 1. So we shall move on. So there's the, there are enemies all around him, but also the environment around him is also a dangerous place. It's like a minefield. There are false ways abounding, not just outside me, but inside me. Psalm 119, verse 29, remove the false way from me and graciously grant me your law. He finds the example of the wicked people that entangle him and entice him. The cords of the wicked ensnare me, he says, yet I do not forget your law. The environment around him is hostile. Like Paul this morning in Philippians chapter 1, um, the psalmist finds many afflictions bearing down upon him, tempting him to doubt the goodness of God's law, and yet by faith he says, it was good for me to be afflicted, because before I was afflicted, I fors- uh, um, it, 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 it was good for me to be afflicted, for now I keep your law. The implication, before affliction came, I was careless and wandered from God's law. And then there are also stumbling blocks in the pathway of this man's life. He says later on in the psalm, great peace of those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble, but there are stumbling blocks. There is the idea, and we need God's law to navigate ourselves around them and through them like a pileup in a NASCAR race. And there are stumbling blocks constantly um, set before us. So, enemies around us, the environment around us. But the greatest enemy, of course, the psalmist laments, is the evil within him. I love the, 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 the last uh, verse of the psalm. Um, it's a good place for, to turn because it's, it's where the psalm begins and ends. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments." You go from the top to the bottom in the psalm. The psalmist says, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation day and night. I love your law more than, than gold and silver, he says. And yet at the end of the psalm, he says, I've wandered away again like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. I can't say I've kept your law, but I can't say I've not forgotten it. And he finds in his soul this wandering disposition from which he needs to be delivered he finds his heart is shrunken. He says, I will run in the way of your commandments. When you enlarge my heart, he's got a shrunken um, heart that doesn't beat hard enough or fast enough. He needs God to enlarge it, that he might give all of it to God in wholehearted obedience. He finds his heart constantly bending the wrong way. He'll say in the psalmist, Lord, incline my heart towards your statutes and not to selfish gain. His heart's bending the wrong way. 
He finds his eyes drawn towards vanity. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. He wants to. His heart is wayward. He needs God to perform heart surgery on him. He has a dusty, earthbound soul. Within a few, a few stanzas, he'll say, my soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. He needs life. He needs God to, to do heavenly CPR and breathe fresh life into his soul again, just like he did with Adam in the garden. He was dusty, um, like Adam in the Garden of Eden, a pile of dust until God breathed life into him. And the psalmist finds himself there and there again, dusty, clinging to the dust, returning to the dust. He finds a, a, a principle of spiritual death at work within him, and he needs God's reviving grace, God's reviving breath. Always iniquity is fighting for the upper hand. Keep steady my steps, he says, according to your promise, and let no iniquity, no hidden crookedness have dominion over me. But the sense as you read the psalm is that iniquity, that hidden crookedness, that hidden pollution at the core of every human soul is constantly fighting for dominion. And so, this psalmist actually is a, is a, is a, is a signpost not just to life, but to true spirituality. If you're here this evening and you're a true Christian, you find a friend in the psalmist of Psalm 119. You find a man who knows you. He's your brother. You are his brother or sister. And you read him, you think, yes, I, I know exactly how you feel. And actually, so it's, it's, it's a very good... Um, you might say, thermometer of your soul's health. Are you alive spiritually? Are you thriving spiritually? Well, read the Psalms. Read through Psalm 119 and ask yourself, is this man's experience my experience? Is this man my brother, spiritually speaking? Am I like him? Is he like me? Do I, do I understand his struggle, his pain, fighting a world at war with God and a heart that's all too often at war with God. Do I know that struggle? Do I share His desires and His passions? Do I feel a need for the life of God in my soul? Sixteen times in the Psalms, this is almost once every stanza, the, the psalmist cries out for God's reviving Word, "'Revive your servant.'" that I might live and keep your law, he says. So, this evening, we come to the first stanza. Just a few thoughts on this as we begin our study in the psalm. The psalm centers around a longing. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Oh, that my ways may be um, stable, established. It's like sometimes when you, if you try to butter cornbread, sometimes there's not enough stuck in it to keep it together, and as you spread the butter on the bread, it kind of all fragments, and you're left with butter in your plate and not much bread left off in the middle. It's frustrating. It's not strong enough. It's not established enough. And the psalmist finds his heart that way. Oh, that my heart was stable and steadfast in keeping your 
statutes. Oh, that my ways were as stable as your word, your word inscribed on stone. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It never changes. But my heart, my ways are up and down, sometimes hot, sometimes cold, but never just right. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I just long, O oh God, I long to be steadfast. Why does the psalmist long for such steadfastness? Do you long for such steadfastness? Can you say that? Has your soul ever felt that? Oh, my heart's not. Watch what, Lord, my chief complaint is that my love is so weak and faint. Do you know that longing? Do you know that sense of a crumbly, desiccated, friable heart that breaks in pieces and doesn't remain true and whole to God? Maybe you've never had that longing. But the psalmist comes alongside you this evening and says to you, you know, let me tell you, let me give you three or four reasons why you should have that longing, why you should long for a steadfast heart that obeys God. First of all, he says, it's the pathway towards happiness. Blessed or simply happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the fatherly instruction of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in His ways. The word blessed here is ashray in the Hebrew. It's the same word used in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. And it describes life lived as it, was, as it ought to have been lived, a wholeness to life, blameless, the psalmist describes, a, a life that's not shattered in pieces, but it's whole and entire. It's a beautiful picture of righteousness. It can be broken with one crack, when your windscreen is cracked, um, it's broken. He's replaced. Just one crack it tends to spread through the windscreen, which reminds me, I must fix one of ours. It's cracked at home at the moment. But it's, it's, it's fractured, and life is like that. Integrity, wholeness, God expects it to be whole and entire. And of course, it's not. It's broken. And there's a beauty about something that's whole. You know, people often say, um, is it not persnickety of God to expect perfection? Well, I ask you, how many, how, many, um, how many scratches are too many on a new car? One. And you're so designed in the image of God that if you walk up to a brand new car you've just bought and you see a scratch on the door, maybe someone's wedding ring scratched it when they're opening it, and you, you're immediately irritated. Every time you go up to the car, you see that scratch. How many stains are two men in a wedding dress? One. You pay a builder to build your wall, and all of the bricks are the same color, but in the middle of the, you know, 435 bricks in the wall, there's one dark brown brick. What do you think? Complete idiot. Why did he, there's a pile of bricks the same color over there that are going to go in the trash can, and he put a brown brick in the middle of my red brick wall. It would drive you crazy. Every time you saw the, the wall, you'd think there's just one brick out of, out of place, and nobody would say you're being persnickering because the human mind loves perfection. It longs for perfection, and we're that way because God is that way. And the psalmist longs for a blameless life, a life that's whole and entire and free from just blame. 
because it's the pathway toward happiness. Do you find happiness? Something all men want and few men find. I was reading recently about Anthony Hopkins. He was interviewed in the GQ magazine, and he was asked about being happy. He said, oh, the irredeemable past, we can never go back. The sadness of life is that we go on. We're born in this world, and at the end we leave, and you think, what was that all about? My life. At the end of it all, I don't know what it is, what it's all about. Is there meaning in it? So what makes me really happy, he says, is what makes me feel free is the feeling that nothing is of that much importance. We're pretty insignificant little dots in our vast universe. Life's only important, he says, because we choose to make it so. And that's the freedom I have. Free from worrying about this, that, and the other. Sorry, free from worrying about this, that, and the other. You know, being significant, and so forth, and so on. He told a struggling actor, enjoy it, just do it. You can either do it or you can't. If you can't, it doesn't matter. Who cares? Finally, in the end. That to me, he says, is happiness. To acknowledge that I know nothing, I'm insignificant, it's all meaningless to me. And it's a bit of fun to have a little bit of a claim and be successful or to achieve things. It's fine. Enjoy it while it lasts. We know nothing. And that comes back to me. I know nothing. I don't know anything. Here's a man living in denial. Nothing means anything. And you can think that if you want, but the problem is everything means something to God. God has an opinion about everything, and He's written down many of those opinions in the Word of God. And you can agree with Him if you want, or you can disagree with Him and be wrong. It doesn't matter. God's opinion is God's opinion. And the psalmist says, no, life is meaningful, and there's happiness to be found, and it's found not in going our own way. It's walking in God's way, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart. Spurgeon says, the holy life is a walk, a steady progress, a quiet advance, a lasting continuance, Enoch walked with God. Good men always long to be better, and hence they go forward. Good men are never idle, and hence they do not lie down or loiter, but they're always walking onward to their desired end. They're not hurried, not worried, not flurried, and so they keep the even tenor of their way, walking steadily with God towards heaven to walk like Jesus. You ever notice Christ was never in a hurry. He's never running anywhere. He's always walking steadfastly, moving purposefully forward with God and towards others. It's a walk, the psalmist is. They seek Him with their whole heart. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said, Cain, Abel's brother, brought his sacrifice but not his heart. Tis a rule, he saith, what the heart doth not do is not done. Willingness is the soul of obedience. God sometimes accepts of willingness without the work, but never of the work without willingness. You seek Him 
with their whole heart. The whole, the idea in Hebrew of the heart is the inner man, the hidden person. When you close your eyes, the, the, the personal you in the darkness behind your retina, your mind, your affections, your feelings, your emotions, your conscience, your thoughts, your choices, your desires, all of that's the heart. And all of it, the psalmist said, is to be given to God. That's the pathway of the happy life. We're never content to sing with Irma Franklin, give me just a little piece of your heart. God wants all of our heart, and the happy man knows it. And the happy man wants all of his heart to be with God. Spurgeon again says, God is never truly sought by the cold researches of the brain. We must seek Him with the heart. Love reveals itself to love. God manifests His heart to the heart of His people. It is in vain that we endeavor to comprehend Him by reason. We must apprehend Him also by affection. Affection. It's the word of Jesus to, to, to um, Peter. Do you love me? We seek Him with all of our heart. It's the pathway to happiness. It's towards God, towards obedience, away from sin, who also do no wrong but walk in His ways. It's a pathway also of obedience. God commands it, therefore we do it. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently, and the word diligently in the Hebrew is literally very. You have commanded your precepts to be kept with all of our veriness. All of the redeemed energies of our soul are to be given into obeying God. Because God is God, and God has spoken, and God has revealed Himself. And therefore, we don't approach God's commandments with a pick and, you know, pick and mix way, like you walk into a candy store and all these jars of candy, take a little bit of that, a little bit of the other, and a little bit of the, of the, of the third. No, we, we, we take it all. It's all beautiful. It's all lovely. It's all from God. It's all being commanded. And we obey because it's the right thing to do. I remember hearing a sermon by Al Martin years and years ago called A Life of Principled Obedience. And the sermon was essentially a meditation on that thought. Christian, he said, until you get to the place that by the grace of God, you do what God says simply because it's God who says it. You'll never progress in the Christian life. Not what you feel you want to do, not what you like doing, not what seems reasonable to you, but simply because God is the one who says it. It's the pathway to obedience. It's the pathway of happiness. It's the pathway of obedience to be kept diligently. Is it not true that some of you in this room have a secret reserve when it comes to obeying God? You kind of have a, I'm not going to study that just in case I find out that what God says I ought to do is different from what I want to do. And so we'll just ignore it, leave it in the corner, like the Sabbath commandment, for example. I'm just not going to study that just in case I find that it might actually forbid me from doing what I really want to do. That's not the heart of this psalm. God's commandments are to be kept diligently. This is, this is not the son hearing his, his father call upstairs to ask him to go out and do some yard work. Um, and my son's 
work very hard in the yard, I'm glad to say, but I could imagine uh, a son up in his bedroom when his dad says, son, it's time to cut the grass, and the son goes, I can't hear him, sorry, <laughs> no, can't hear him, and the son, uh, the moment he hears the father's voice, in go the fingers. That's not the, the heart of this psalm. It's the pathway to happiness. It's the pathway of a willing child who wants to obey his father. It's the picture of the life of God in the soul of a man. It's also the pathway of happiness, the pathway of obedience, and the pathway away from shame. Verse 5 and 6, Oh, that my ways be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all, not just some, but all your commandments. It's a word deeply rooted at the core of the Bible. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned, and suddenly in that moment they were ashamed. Before, they were naked and unashamed. No fear in Adam's heart that Eve would look into his soul and see reason for regret, reason for dissatisfaction. No fear in Eve's soul that Adam would know her as only a husband could know her, and find her to be a disappointment. Being unsatisfied. Being embarrassed of him. That's the essence of shame. I'm not what I ought to be. And I'm, I'm not just, I know that, that's bad enough, but when others know that, oh, it's painful. It's arrogant. Sitting at the stoplight, picking your nose, and you look across, and Nancy Wells or some, some, some nice woman from the church is looking at you in utter horror and disgust. Shame. You are ashamed of yourself, and you ought to be. That's, that's the picture, right? But it's not just some of the things we do. It's all of the things we do. There's a sense of shame. It makes us want to hide in our, in our car or... Um, as Adam and, the, and Eve in the Garden of Eden, hiding from God, drawing away from God, terrified to unzip their souls in God's presence. And the psalmist, he loves the Word of God because instinctively, and he'll read the rest of the Bible to find it. The law is the, is the signpost to it. But he knows that somehow in gathering up the broken pieces of his life and connecting them to God's law, he'll find a pathway out of shame. Now, there's much more to be said than that, more in a moment. Not much more, a little bit more. And then lastly, it's the pathway toward God. It's the pathway toward God. I will praise you with, up, with an upright heart, the psalmist says, when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not utterly forsake me. That's what the psalmist wants. He wants to be in the presence of God. And yet he has a heart that is crumbling and divided and unsteady and inclined away from God, inclined towards other things. He falls down much more than he stands up, right? He's, he's got a wandering, wicked heart, and there's this fear in his soul of being utterly forsaken by God. Why does he, why, why does he have that fear? he wants to be wrapped up in the presence of God. And that's the great question that 
really is goes through the whole Bible. How can a holy God have fellowship with an unholy people? It's the it's the instinct understanding, instinctive understanding of every human being who's, who's had, has their head on straight. If God gives me what I deserve, it'll be a, an eternity of utter forsakenness. That God will cast me off away from Him, away from life, away from light, away from joy, away from gladness, away from fulfillment into the, the cosmic trash can, which is the everlasting burnings of hell, and to be utterly forsaken, that God will treat me the way He treated Jesus upon the cross. That very last word, is related to the word Jesus said upon the cross. It's, it's ta'asveni, which is very like sabachthani in the Hebrew and the Aramaic. And it literally says in the Hebrew, do not abandon me unto veriness, the darkness. Do not cast me out with all the strength you have, O God. And maybe you're here this evening, and you think to yourself, is sin really that bad? Is my sin really that bad? Is your sin really that bad? And the way you know it is really that bad is Jesus. That when Jesus appeared in God's presence, clothed in your sin, That's exactly what God did to him. He utterly forsook him. He abandoned him to the veriness of nothingness. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me, Jesus says. And God did that to Jesus, that he would never do that to you. And Psalm 119 it describes the ABCs of godliness, what it means to walk with God. And always remember this psalm, it's the psalm book of Jesus before it's the psalm book of you and me. That Jesus read this psalm and probably memorized this psalm as a little boy growing up in Israel, probably not much older than Matthew and Henry's age, but he memorized this psalm. And it taught him as his mind, as he was growing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God, it taught him what it meant to obey God, what it meant to walk with God and serve Him. It put ideas into his mind as he was learning words and concepts. And of course, his nature ran with this psalm immediately. But right here, as his messianic consciousness is dawning upon him, at the very end of the first stanza, he comes face to face with the appalling cost of your redemption. There'll be hell to pay for these. 
people. If I am to keep their prayer, do not forsake me utterly. I must ignore your prayer one day, son, when I make you into sin and then curse you. And you cry out, my God, my God, why? There'll be no answer for you because of my determination to always answer them. I will treat you as the sin of the world that I might treat them as the sons and daughters of God. And as you can imagine Jesus reading this and stopping here, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. But Father, they haven't kept your statutes, which means you must utterly forsake them. Or instead of them, you will utterly forsake me. And Jesus says, Father, I have come. It is my food and my drink to do your will, O God. I want to obey you with all of my heart, even if it means obeying you means marching away from you into hell under your judgment and your wrath and your curse because of my love for you and my love for them and your love for us both, that we together may bring many sons to glory. And when you get that, if you're here this evening and you don't you're thinking, this is so boring, you know, I just have no idea why anyone has feels so passionate about God that wants to obey Him so much. The only reason you're that way is because you don't understand the cross. You don't understand grace. You don't understand the love of Jesus. But when you do, when God opens your eyes, what a difference it'll make. Your heart will say, oh, Father, I want to obey you. I want to stop sinning. It's the pathway to happiness. It's the pathway of obedience. It's the pathway away from shame. It's the pathway towards God. My highest treasure in life and in death for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word this evening and for your psalms that speak to us of the life of God and the soul of men. We pray, Father, you put our broken hearts back together again and teach us to feel rightly to think rightly and to live rightly as we put, take the psalmist's words as our words and worship you in them and through them. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.